Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. I shared in the opening message how, um, you know, some very credible evangelical voices are saying things like, we should really not take so much notice of the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, why don't we unhitch our faith from the Old Testament and it makes our apologetic task so much easier. We don't have to talk about things like slavery and and, uh, um, misogyny and and anti-gay rhetoric, which, which, you know, people say all comes from the Old Testament. So I've been talking to you about why that's not a wise idea. I know that the Old Testament has some difficult passages and some difficult ideas. The answer to those difficulties is not to unhitch our faith faith from them, but is to work our way through them and see what the Old Testament scriptures were actually talking about. I've shared to you and with you a number of times over these last few weeks that the Bible constitutes a story from start to finish. It's not a book of rules and laws and and isolated psalms and proverbs. It's God's story. And it's like a five-act play in a way. You've got act one, which is creation. You've got act two, which is the fall. Something's gone wrong with our world. Act three is the calling of Abraham and Abraham's seed, the children of Israel. That runs through to the New Testament. Act four, if you like, is the coming of Jesus. We are in, if you, if you want to keep that analogy, we're in act five. This is God's story from start to finish. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament and laboring this fact that it's God's story. We should not, in fact, we must not cut off the first part of the story because there are elements in it that are not to our, not to our liking or that we find difficult to understand. To ditch the Old Testament because it creates some apologetic problems for us is to disrupt and corrupt the story. You cannot read the New Testament. You can't read the Gospels without realizing that the story they tell has its beginning somewhere else. Something has gone before to which the Gospels are related and without some knowledge of which they cannot be correctly understood. So much of the New Testament becomes practically unintelligible if you extract the Old Testament from it or ignore it. Now, rather than simply banging on about that, because I have really done that over the last couple of weeks, what I thought I'd do this evening is try and illustrate what I'm talking about by taking an Old Testament theme, a a motif, if you like, from the Old Testament, and follow it through and show how the New Testament writers pick it up. Last week I was talking about hearing the grand piano play behind the story. And if you don't know the story, you don't hear the grand piano playing. And uh, in this instance, what we hear is this Old Testament motif taken through into the New Testament, and the New Testament writers are playing on that grand piano. And if you've got ears to hear, you will hear that motif being carried on and carried through. The Old Testament motif I want to look at is, is the Exodus motif. It's one of the central allusions, uh, one of the central themes of the scripture, and allusions and echoes and direct references to it resonate through both Old and New Testament scriptures. It's part of the basic fabric of both uh, testaments. In fact, so much so, Old Testament scholar Walter Walter Brueggemann says, he, he speaks about the Exodus grammar of Yahweh. 
Now, when we speak about the Exodus, I, I guess you know the story. I'm talking about God coming and bringing deliverance to the children of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. The book of Genesis finishes up with Joseph being uh, sold into slavery in Egypt, becoming prime minister, and, uh, and, and having a place of incredible influence and, um, and impact in Egypt. And he brings his father, Jacob, and his brothers down to Egypt to save them from the famine that is gripping the region. And initially, they have great favor because of Joseph's exploits and reputation. But in time, a pharaoh arises who knew not Joseph, and their fortunes take a dramatic turn for the worse. And they find themselves enslaved and then in bondage for 400 years. The book of Exodus commences with God hearing the cries of this enslaved people and setting himself to deliver them. And most of us know the story, even if it's from the movie The Ten Commandments, you know, Cecil B. DeMille and Charles Heston, rather than the Bible. But, but God meets Moses at the burning bush and commissions him to go back to Egypt from whence he'd come and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He does that, Pharaoh hardens his heart, ten plagues follow, culminating in the slaying of Egypt's firstborn son and the, the uh, sparing of Israel's firstborn son because of the blood-splattered door, um, the Passover lamb slain on their behalf. You know the story, Moses leads Israel out, Pharaoh chases them and his pursuing army is drowned at the Red Sea. The giving of the law follows at Mount Sinai, they build the tabernacle, then unfortunately wander in the wilderness for 40 years before ultimately uh, Joshua takes a new generation into the promised land. When you talk about the Exodus, you are talking about all of those events, not just out of Egypt, but out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land. So it's out, through, and in that constitutes the, uh, the, the uh, Exodus motif. It was at Mount Sinai, that, that the children of Israel were constituted as a nation. Up until this point, they are basically the ragtag extended family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But at Mount Sinai, a nation is formed. And historians and sociologists have long noted the formative influence that a group's founding moments have on its self-understanding and identity. These founding moments exert a profound shaping influence on the group's identity and character. It provides a basis for their raison d'etre, for their reason for being. The ideology that develops from those founding moments creates and then facilitates the social cohesion of the group. It creates an interpretive framework for them and for their understanding of the world and their place in it. And scholars have long noted that it's doubtful whether a community can exist very long if their connection with their inaugural past is broken or lost. And there's plain evidence of that in the number of indigenous communities who for various reasons have lost touch with their roots and as a result crumble into social disarray. Intuitively understanding the need to maintain connection to its roots, nearly all groups develop ritual enactments of those founding moments and events. So the communists have their May Day parades, the French have their Bastille Day, Americans have the 4th of July, we have Waitangi. Jewish people have their annual Passover celebration in which they remember and reenact their founding moments, their, um, their exodus event. 
In those celebrations, history is retold. The values and ideals enshrined in those founding moments are relived and, and reconstituted, and the people are called back to identity and mission. So create, uh, culture is created, developed, and deepened by remembering and reenacting. For Hebrew people, the founding Exodus event, the out, the through, and the in, colors and shapes their story absolutely profoundly. Their corporate thinking is Exodus-shaped. Their grammar is, as Brueggemann says, Exodus grammar. Their mental map is Exodus-soaked. So words and phrases and symbols throughout the Scripture recall the whole story for them as they read the Scriptures. Now, they are often missed by us because we don't hear the grand piano playing. Every year at Passover, the Exodus is reenacted, not simply to remember, but also to create expectation and anticipation. The God who acted so wonderfully and powerfully to rescue our fathers in the first Exodus can and will rescue powerfully and wonderfully a new generation. Now, if you know the Bible story, you'll know Israel's history. They got into the promised land. They went out through and in and then completely failed to be the people that God called them to be. A few bright moments notwithstanding, the moral and spiritual trajectory was a downward one. They fell into idolatry and ultimately were so far removed from God that God said, you might as well be geographically removed as well. And he sent them into exile. The northern tribes into Assyrian exile, the southern tribes 150 years later into Babylonian exile. Now, Moses had prophesied in his last address for, to Israel as they stood on uh, in, in the plains of Moab, about ready to go into the land, he addressed them in Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, and, and he prophesied Israel's history. He said to them in Deuteronomy 28, 68, the Lord will send you back in ships to Egypt on a journey. I said you should never make again. There you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. Now, we Westerners might read that and say that never happened. The children of Israel were never sent to Egypt again. But, but that, would, that would be to completely miss the piano playing of the Exodus motif. What, what Moses is doing here, he's not incorrect. He's using Egypt as a, as a metaphor of their slavery. He's saying, you will go again into slavery. It'll be like it was in Egypt. You will be slaves if you don't obey. Slavery awaits you. He wasn't mistaken. He was using Exodus grammar. Ex Egypt becomes a symbol of exile and captivity, not meant to be taken literally. Not only did Moses predict that they would go into exile, he also predicted a second Exodus. He said, you'll come out of that. And there will be another exodus. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 30. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord 
your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. He's prophesying to them. He said, you'll go into exile, but there will be a second exodus. And he's not the only Old Testament prophet that says this. Jeremiah says it. Uh, Ezekiel says it. Isaiah really is soaked in this whole idea of a second exodus. It's his dominant theme. And some scholars have said the theme of the new exodus in Isaiah is all other things are subservient to that dominant theme. No other prophet gave the prominence to this second exodus promise that Isaiah did. And what Isaiah and the prophets are saying is the same God that worked wonderfully in the first exodus will do the same again. And the new exodus will parallel the first in some respects, and yet the coming deliverance will be even greater and more far-reaching than the first. So in Isaiah chapter 11, he says this, At that time, the Lord will bring back a remnant of his people for the second time. Now, he doesn't have to explain what the second time is. They all know the first time. They are soaked in the Exodus motif. They knew they came out the first time. Here's Isaiah saying a second one will come. Returning them to the land of Israel from Assyria, Upper and Lower Egypt, Ethiopia, Elam, Babylonia, and Hamath, and all the distant coastal lands. He'll raise up a flag among the nations for them to rally to. He will gather the scattered Israelites from the end of the earth. Isaiah is soaked in this idea of this a coming second exodus. I'll just read you three passages. I could probably read 15. You listen to these three passages and see if you can hear the echoes and the allusions to the first exodus. Some of them are pretty loud. You're going to have to be fairly deaf to miss them. Isaiah 50. Wake up, wake up, flex your muscles, God. Wake up as in as in the old days in, lo in long ago. And didn't you once dry up the sea, the powerful waters of the deep, and then made the bottom of the ocean a road for the redeemed to walk across? In the same way God's ransom will come back, he could have put in there a second time, come back to Zion, cheering, shouting, joy eternal, wreathing their heads. You dried up the Red Sea. He's, he's hearkening back to that. Isaiah 48, go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it even to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the desert. He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. That's the through part of out, through, in. In Isaiah 52, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out of the midst of her, be clean you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Remember the cloud, the, the fire, the pillar of cloud and fire that, that guarded them. This is, this is Exodus soaked. And Isaiah is saying, You've, you know the first exodus? There's going to be a second one. For the second time he will act. So many of the prophets speak about this return from exile. Now again, if you know your history, you'll know that there came a time in history where God stirred up the spirit of a Persian king by the name of Cyrus and he told the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon that they could go home. And they did under the leadership of people like Ezra and Nehemiah. And you see those books in the Old Testament. 
However, what I would want to say, and what nearly all scholars say, is that this is clearly not the fulfilment of the hoped-for, prophesied new exodus. And the reason we can say that is there are a number of non-negotiable elements of the prophesied new exodus that were not realised by this geographic return in Ezra and Nehemiah's time. Firstly, Moses had prophesied the proof that the exile was over and the second exodus was underway was that the children of Israel would no longer be the tail moved around by the head, he says, but you will be the head and the nations will be the tail. In other words, he's saying, you won't be ruled by other nations, you will rule the nations. Well, clearly, when Ezra and Nehemiah led the people back from Babylon, they didn't rule anyone. They were under the thumb of one empire after another, Persia, Greece, Rome. So that first non-negotiable, you'll be the head and not the tail, didn't happen. A second non-negotiable was that Elijah would come and prepare the way. Isaiah spoke about this. Isaiah 40, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make the, the mountains come down, the valleys come up. Interestingly, that that's found in the New Testament. But he's talking about this exile that would be over and that Elijah would come. Malachi says, I'll send my messenger and he will prepare the way before you and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. He is coming, says the Lord. And in chapter four, see, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreaded day of the Lord. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. You'll rule and Elijah will come. Neither happened. Third non-negotiable, the sign of the new exodus was that the son of David would be on the throne. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3, Surely the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Judah and Israel. The Lord says I will also cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they will possess it. And in verse 9, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. You'll be the head, not the tail. Elijah will come. The son of David will be on the throne. The new Moses of this second exodus would be a new David. Fourthly, the second exodus would hallow the name of Yahweh among the nations. The glory of, the, of, of, of Yahweh would be spread among the nations. Clearly that didn't happen. These were an oppressed minority back in the land and they didn't proclaim the name of Yahweh to the nations. And the final two non-negotiables of this prophesied new exodus were resurrection and an outpoured spirit. So those were the five non-negotiables of this second exodus. None of these had come to pass. And it made the Jewish people realise that they were still in exile. The geographical return, notwithstanding, they had not seen the prophesied new exodus come. And then the canon of the Old Testament closes. The promise of this new exodus, completely unrealised. If we unhitch our faith and our theology from the Old Testament, then that that new exodus promise is left high and dry, completely unresolved and unfulfilled. If the Bible is an unbroken story, as I'm suggesting to you it is, then we might expect that that theme of the second exodus is picked up in the next act of the play, and it is. The Gospels do not start a new and unrelated story, but begin to explain the new Exodus hope and the promises and say they are coming to fulfillment in the person of Jesus. 
So Matthew's gospel opens by presenting actually a remarkable parallel between the the nativity and the Exodus story. Mostly we don't see it because we don't hear the piano playing the Exodus motif. But listen to this. In both stories, Israel find themselves ruled by an oppressive foreign power. The old story, Egypt. The new story, Rome. In both, there are women of faith and bravery that come to the fore. In the old story, Moses' mother, Jochebed, and his sister, Miriam. In the new story, Miriam, Mary, and Elizabeth. In both, there is the birth of a remarkable child, Moses and Jesus. In both, an evil king or a pharaoh is intent on killing the child. In both, there's an escape. Israel escapes from Egypt. Jesus escapes Herod by going to Egypt. Israel is tested for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is tested for 40 days in the wilderness. The grand piano is playing. And Jewish people make the connections. So often we don't. Israel begins their possession of the promised land by going through the Jordan. Jesus begins his public ministry by being immersed in the Jordan and coming out of it. The law is then given from the mountain in the old story. Jesus goes up the Mount of Beatitudes and starts his story. Matthew is deliberately playing the new Exodus theme, and Jewish ears would hear it, even if you and I don't. And if we unhitch our faith from the Old Testament story, that will be completely lost to us. So Matthew picks up the story. Mark picks up the story. He begins his gospel by quoting both Malachi and Isaiah. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, look, I'm sending my messenger before your face. Remember, the non-negotiable of the new exodus is that Elijah would come. I'm sending my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You know, in ancient literature, the first sentences and the opening paragraphs were equivalent to and performed the function of our title page and list of contents. Those opening paragraphs inform you where the author is going to take you. And Mark is saying, I'm going to tell you about the new Exodus theme that Malachi spoke of, that Isaiah spoke of, that Jeremiah spoke of, that Ezekiel spoke of, that Moses prophesied. Scholar Richard B. Hayes says, Mark's use of the Isaiah ascription here in that passage signals the conceptual framework for his gospel is the Isianic New Exodus. I'm telling you where I'm going, and it's the new exodus that Isaiah prophesied. Ricky Watts, the Australian scholar, says, Mark is almost certainly announcing the beginning of the long-awaited Isianic New Exodus. Luke is the same. Jesus' saving activity in Luke is portrayed in images drawn straight from Isaiah's, Isaiah's passages on the prophesied new exodus. And again, scholar Richard B. Hayes says, Luke's extended citation of Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 in Luke 3 functions as a programmatic introduction to Jesus' ministry and frames his activity in the terms of Isaiah's visionary prophecy of the end of Israel's exile. These guys are setting the scene and saying, you know, all that stuff that was said in the Old Testament about the new exile, it is now coming to pass and it's being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is found alone with Moses and Elijah. Interesting combination in terms of our 
New Exodus thinking. And it says they begin to debate his, or, or discuss his departure that's about to take place in Jerusalem. They're talking about Jesus going to the cross. The word departure in the Greek language is the word exodus. They are talking about his exodus. It's not coincidental. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, all hook their stories into the, the, the new exodus motif and the theme. John is practically incomprehensible without an Old Testament background. And he tells his story in profound Exodus grammar. He starts off in, in, in the prologue and says, the word was made flesh and, and he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. He pitched a tabernacle. Every Jewish, people, every Jewish person was thinking back to the tabernacle in the Exodus, the through part of their journey. And then he talks about Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Without doubt, John is speaking, John the Baptist is speaking about the Passover Lamb. Philip declares to Nathanael in chapter 1, we found the one Moses and the prophets spoke of. Jesus said he was the one who would be lifted up like the brazen serpent in the wilderness. That's the Exodus journey. He is the real manna from heaven. He's the real water from the rock. He's the real light that leads the people through the wilderness. He's the great I am. It occurs again and again and again in John. And it's tapping into the, to the, the, uh, the great I am of the Exodus. John is incomprehensible without the Exodus. His book is Passover soaked. He, he, he mentions the Passover ten times and the feast, speaking of that feast, at least another nine times. In addition to that, the, the new covenant that Jesus makes with his disciples is made at a Passover meal. He's crucified at the exact time that the Paschal lambs were being sacrificed by the priests. They are cutting the throats of the lamb as Jesus is being hung on the cross. The crucifixion is Passover soaked. Remember in the crucifixion story, they take some hyssop, dip it in vinegar and try and give Jesus a drink. It's the hyssop branch that was used to dip in the blood and paint on the walls, the doorposts and the lintel at the Passover event. Every Jewish person is hearing the piano being played. And John says, and not a bone was broken. You know, the Passover lamb was not allowed to have a broken bone. They're all hearing this. So often you and I don't. So the four gospel writers take their story and hitch it to the, to the second Exodus motif. And what they're saying is all of those promises are now being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Paul does the same. He develops and deepens the Exodus motif. N.T. Wright, the biblical scholar, says Paul treats Christians as precisely God's new Exodus people. They are led by God through the present wilderness. Their guide is the Spirit who takes up the role of the pillar of fire in the wilderness. There are as many as 40 references in Paul's corpus to the, to the Exodus, particularly Galatians and Romans. Paul sees the redemption of Old Testament Israel in, in the Exodus as a prototype of the greater redemption from sin wrought by Christ for God's new Israel. Again, just let me quote him. You listen for the Passover echoes. They're not echoes, they're shouts. But listen for them. 1 Corinthians 5. Therefore purge out the old yeast that you may have a new batch, since you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with the old yeast, nor with the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You can't miss that. 
The Passover bread was to be unleavened. And here's Paul talking about that story in 1 Corinthians 10. I would not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. He's talking about the wilderness, the through part of the Exodus motif. And what Paul is doing is he retells the Exodus story and he translates it into Christian imagery. The book of Hebrews does the same. I won't bother going there because it's just filled with Old Testament and particularly Exodus-related language. Peter's epistle does the same. It draws on the Exodus story. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that you were not redeemed from your vain way of life inherited from your fathers with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. This is Passover language. This is Exodus language. They are, none of the writers of the New Testament unhitch their story from that story. What they are saying is all that is being fulfilled in Jesus. Finally, you come to the book of Revelation. It's not surprising that the consummation of all things is Exodus-shaped and told in Exodus grammar. It starts off in the very first chapter by the, the blood of the Lamb which frees the saints so that we can be a kingdom of priests. That's Exodus chapter 19. That's Israel at Mount Sinai. There are plagues in the book of Revelation that bear striking resemblance to the ten plagues of, of the Exodus. Water being turned into blood, hail, locusts, darkness. It's not coincidental. There's a dragon figure who tries to kill a special child. In Revelation chapter 15, the saints are standing by a sea of glass, triumphing over their enemy, and it says they are singing, and it isn't coincidental that the song is called the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. As the children of Israel stood on the shores of the Red Sea, having watched the Egyptian army be drowned, they began singing, and they sang what's called the Song of Moses. Here the redeemed of the earth are standing in the presence of God, having seen their enemies destroyed, and they beginning they begin singing the song of the Exodus, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The book and the story concludes with God's people coming into their promised rest. A new city, a new heavens, and a new earth. And the Bible turns out to be a story of cosmic redemption. I want to suggest to you that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Moses prophesied. He said of his people, you'll rule the nations of the earth. You will be the head and you will not be the tail. Elijah will come before me. And then remember he said they crucified John the Baptist. They, they killed John the Baptist. He was the Elijah that was to come. He said, my name will be hallowed in the earth. And, and through Christian mission, the name of Jesus has literally gone throughout the earth. There will be resurrection. There will be outpoured spirit. So we see the non-negotiables of that second exodus fulfilled in Jesus and in his people. You can't, you, you, if you want to unhitch your faith from the Old Testament, I'm sorry, but you don't know where you stand in the story. You've cut yourself off from the story. And the story is that of a saviour who has come to redeem an enslaved people. 
And you could say to me, well, Don, I'm, I'm not enslaved. We live in a free democracy and thank God for it. Yes, we do, and I'm grateful as you are. However, I, I don't know that there has been a more enslaved generation than this generation. We are enslaved to masters that are hard taskmasters. People are addicted to alcohol, to pornography, to pee. They're codependent. They're anxious and bound, and we, we need redemption. We need, we need the Savior to come and say, set my people free, and he has. He's come, he died on the cross, his blood has been shed for you so that you can know freedom from your sin, freedom from your shame, and freedom from your addictions and your slavery. He can set you free. Somebody said to me before the service, and I'm so grateful for it, and the person won't mind me saying that he was an addict, and he said, Don, how do addicts get free? And I said, well, that's the $64 million question, isn't it? He says, just one answer. And I said, tell me. And he said, it's God. God. And for those of you who've been addicted, and lots of us have known the power and pull of it, the one who will break it, I tell you, is Jesus. You can, you can go to rehab, and some of you may need to, and I'm not against that. But I want to tell you, a, a free people are a people not only who see the thing broken, but who find who they're supposed to be. And that happens in and through the Saviour. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.